Feel with the Abstract Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Eric Veal with the Abstract Capable Communities Podcast. Today, I'm here with Ellie, Andrew, and Michael, and we're talking about managing customer service. Uh, in the first segment, we just talked a little bit about developing a customer service strategy, and we wondered whether or not customer service is dead. And uh, the next, next segment we're going to launch into is all about uh, managing customer service operations, essentially. So here we're looking at the workforce. We're looking at handling the volume of customer service types of requests uh, that come in and, and how those are dealt with, and then dealing with complaints. And Michael would like to tell us first a, a, about some experiences he had working with GEICO. Thanks. Um, I worked uh, in a GEICO sales and service center for a year and a half and uh, was trained and worked on both sides of the business. One of the interesting things is that GEICO is a Warren Buffett company. And uh, as an organizational consultant, I was intrigued with how they handled uh, the uh, customer service, both in terms of the sales, because in the selling of the service, you have to build your customer service into that. And the customer service of handling the questions or the, I was just in an accident, who do I talk to now, um, had a different feel uh, from other organizations that I had been connected with, both governmental and, and uh, private. The, so the emphasis uh, on uh, resolving the issue as quick, uh, with as few calls as possible, uh, I felt was a, um, a well-placed uh, strategy. However, it was hampered by the restriction on the uh, service people of how long they were on the phone. So if you took too long on the phone, then you uh, got a down check or had a discussion about that. So I saw some conflicts back and forth. Uh, and it's interesting from that experience to deal with phone service, uh, uh, excuse me, for, uh, service centers by phone and can listen to what I'm hearing, are they going, well, how fast can I get you off the phone so my supervisor doesn't get after me, or how well can I take care of your problem? And I think that that's a conflicting um, strategy and objective. For sure it is. And I have to say, one thing that's that's interesting to me hearing you talk about Geico is that they are pro-automation. I mean, you can do everything just about online in terms of setting up and managing your accounts, and their website is very good. They also have a non-human spokesperson, right? They've had the, oh, right. li they've had the lizard forever. <laughs> and so when we talk about trust in gecko, like non-human... Gecko, not, not lizard, gecko. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> when we clear. talk about having um, trust in non-humans, like they have actually 
built this non-human representative that seems very human. It's you know? even their mascot. Their mascot. Yeah. And, is, and at the same time, and in all of the space of talking about, um, it's giving you like a cute attachment, you know, to auto insurance. And then they back it up with like kind of this great website, which also has the gecko on it. Well, this, uh, this issue kind of gets back to the people don't scale problem in that uh, it's hard to, like, if you wanted to make judgments about maybe this, maybe it was worth it for this employee to spend 20 minutes on the phone with this person. It's really hard to scale up the ability to make that kind of judgment because that's something that is hard for a machine to do, to make that kind of assessment. If maybe in this instance, it was worth keeping that person on, you know, on board so I'm actually got to put in here that we are reaching a golden age in terms of phone service, though, in that, and I've worked on a couple projects just recently, it's gotten to be much cheaper to do voice to text and to do the analyses, therefore, of those because we have machine learning that can analyze a lot of text. And so whereas before, for a long time, they've had it where, you know, your phone call is being recorded. But for somebody to actually go through all of this audio and find and analyze the bad calls, it's more, again, like about audit and forensics. And so if somebody can get in trouble for the call, then that was one thing. But it doesn't mean that they could holistically look at the gist of the calls and understand sentiment in all of those calls. But there is several, there are several projects now that are about call center analysis by turning voice into text data. And we'll talk, we'll talk at length in the next segment about the measurement side of this. So let's try to stay focused on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know it's so exciting. I know the measurement really is the cool part. I can't wait until we get there. But right now, let's stay focused on the workforce, basically okay. how you hire people. The, the actual management of the volume that comes in. And I agree that there's all kinds of technological solutions to deal with a request. So I think that's a point worth making 100%. And then the, the third, maybe we can discuss this one, is, is more the escalations part. Yeah. And basically when calls don't go well, and what would that experience be like, uh, for example, that a customer is having a bad experience, that they are there to complain and this, this in many, you know, at the micro level gets down to remediation for that customer. How do you make them whole again if, there, if there's some remedy that's required for the experience that they've gone through? And I'd like to jump in on the hiring. <clears throat> I've had experience uh, not necessarily hiring customer service people, but hiring people to run workshops. And I think based in my uh, experience in my own uh, company and in at Geico and comparing that to workshop leaders, the problem is there is no easy way to tell if, Eric, you're going to be good in customer service until I hear you on the phone or watch you in front of somebody, which then you know makes it really difficult from an HR standpoint in terms of, okay, how who are we going to offer the job to and how are we going to judge whether they're able to do the job and you know do we put them on probation and all of the HR decisions that are connected with well, that. Well, business and especially HR like wrote checklists that they can go oh, down yes. to make a decision. But there's some things that just require a, uh, a depth of understanding that can't be represented that way. One of the things I... I think is really important and that there's not enough analyses 
on is like really exceptional customer service. I mean, I think that we can make checklists that talk about, you know, was your, or you do little surveys, customer success surveys that say, you know, how was your, how long did it take or what was the thing? But when I come across really great customer service, it's like you're dealing with somebody who is predictive or somebody who can actually emotionally diffuse a situation and be some kind of a firefighter. And listening, Michael, to the things that you said, one of the things that stands out to me is our good customer service at the point where we need to have a human do customer service are the best customer service agents in some ways teachers? I think absolutely they're teachers. I think um, in my experience, there's a couple different levels of it, if, especially if we look at the the kind of complaint side. I think there's bad experiences at the one-on-one interpersonal communications level where the the dialogue and the back and forth between the customer that's complaining and the for whatever person for whatever reason either side can't really communicate and so an additional resources or additional parties are required and so I, I think that that kind of thing happens at a small level just at an, at an individual level and then I think it also happens at especially in business like at the account level where um, the organization that's providing the service starts to have a stink to it and that one person that had a bad experience, it basically creates a culture of lack of trust, for example, in the supplier. And then you have issues where you didn't just lose a person, you lost an account, and that account might be worth millions of dollars, for example. And so it really is an art and a skill and a science, and, and so much is built in, I think, to an individual that there's so much risk in delivering customer service through individuals that, and it it requires skill in many levels to... Well, there are there is a science to assessing that. I've name-dropped in uh, some of our gatherings and maybe another show, the book Human Competence, which is all about measuring people's performance, figuring out how to improve it. And there is a way to do that. The problem with that is it often runs against the grain of how people like to think about organizational performance. And uh, one thing that the, uh, the book gets into is these sort of cargo cults that develop in organizations where they see, comp- they see uh, competence as following some sort of checklist, some sort of rote set of behaviors. But often the true competence does not come from following the model they've set. But that model is the cornerstone of their organizational culture, and that's where you get a problem. So the book gave an example of uh, field technicians who are expected to go through a checklist of, uh, you know, a checklist of uh, tests they did on a device that they had installed for people. And they found that one of the technicians was getting more positive results. Uh, she was clearing her, her, cut, her backlog more quickly than the others. But she did not turn in uh, completed checklists. So they, uh, this consultant went on, she basically joined her on one of her outings. And it turned out that she figured out a way to uh, assess the problem more quickly than the others, hence the uh, lack of filled out checklists. But she was being assessed negatively because of, you know, because of those same checklists. So 
his approach was to coach people into a different way of thinking about competence and uh, basically figuring out what your real desired result is and what is actually being done to reach that goal. But that's, again, something that requires a level of introspection and self-examination, which uh, a lot of people are loath to do. I've thought, uh, sorry, I've thought a lot about the role of human or of humor in service uh, as Geico's like little mascot is so endearing to us because it's cute and because it's funny. And likewise, like breaking the tension in some customer service interactions. And I have to say I was in service for many years. For me, a lot of points is where where is it safe to laugh with your customer or where can you really enjoy your customer as a person? And that is like kind of the ultimate level of competence, like at a point where you can take those kinds of risks with your customer. And yet it's something that never shows up on an evaluation. Right. Well, it can take a disturbing turn as well. I read recently an essay about the cutifying of authority. <laughs> there was a science fiction story I recall about an augmented reality world where police officers all appeared as these cutesy kind of Lego type people. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that they could shoot you, but you didn't see the guns. You just saw, you know, a cute Lego guy. So, you know, and then the Geico thing is similar. I mean, insurance companies, <laughs> you know, they make decisions that can have serious financial bearing on you. But the, you know, the cute gecko can be a little disarming. I'd like to go back to a point that you made, which was uh, the one about people being able to handle and perceive. How, what are your thoughts, Ellie, about how we build that into software? So I, it's very interesting because I emphasize a lot, again, like the focus of my work tends to be on citizenship and trying to extend government services, which can be particularly tricky because adoption can't be forced there, but at the same time, like as as Eric mentioned at breakfast, you don't really have a choice, say, in what kind of election system you use. It's like you're kind of stuck. We have the one government in our nation, and we all have to kind of deal with it, right? Um, and it's also like very big groups. Like So one of the things that we need to look at more is when people are interacting with the software and they make a complaint... As Eric mentioned, again, like what is the path of transparency? How do they know that it was effective? And how can we say that when you're making a complaint, there's not like a million other people making the same complaint and it's never being like authentically resolved? The role of maintenance of bringing the customer at least into your at least having enough transparency so that they understand that not only are their needs met, but that they are influencing your service is like a really critical point in providing excellent service, I think. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so the, the, there's a lot of cultural issues to it. I think that's all part of this is at the individual level, you have to think about the particular person that's providing the customer service. How professional are they? How good are they? How knowledgeable are they? And so forth. And so I think there's that level. And then I think that um, from the perspective of the organization, there's the idea of we work as a team or we work as a group, and and that that um, and we had this question come up at lunch as well, which is, 
It sounds like we ate breakfast and lunch. We had one meal and <laughs> some people ate, ate. Yeah, we call it brunch. <laughs> That's the nickname for it. So uh, that oh, was. Oh, yeah. So basically, um, when you're a consultant or an individual provider and you're a soloist, essentially, you manage and carry all of the risk of that interaction. It's yours to win or lose at any given moment, basically, depending on on your level of professionalism and, and many other factors and skill and delivery and, and everything else. Whereas at an, orga- at an organization level, you at least have this capability to swap people in and out, to try different things, to bring in. You can be more strategic about it other than just kind of stand and deliver and, and improvise. We talked about it definitely when we discussed delivery is one of the things that made great delivery was empowerment. And I think the same is true of customer service agents. I mean, one of the ways we could improve customer service is to give customer service people a better career path where they can influence the kind of service that they're providing through their experience. And also that they don't, that their excellence in their field doesn't mean that they'll be stuck in a low-wage job forever. Like, can we bring customer service people, like, as we discussed, can we bring them into engineering through a technical path in a software company? Can we bring them into managing larger groups or provide better better opportunities as a way to make that less of a dead-end career path? It's hypothetically a big gateway, right? To your point, I think that it's romantic, and I really like the idea of saying that you could, you could, I don't know what is the minimum footprint of this person that you would hire for customer service, but if you define, define that low bar of whatever it is that you would authorize somebody to provide customer service, but because there's a value to the organization of employing that person and giving them a job to give customer service, whatever that might mean, then hypothetically through good organization development practices and training methods and education and so forth, that those people that start in the field, quote unquote, can wind up being, you know, CEO or whatever it might be. But I, I feel like that is kind of business in many ways, or it's like at least the notion of some path going from the beginning to some more significant. And I, I've seen that and I've seen that recently where um, I work in a customer service organization. And so there are there are people where the path is customer service in many ways is kind of the beginning of their career. And there's a path toward, say, the engineering group or other roles. But there needs to be a plan and intention around developing those resources into something more hypothetically. Or they are just a revolving door resource that you just get in and get out and you don't care about them. And that, I think, goes back to the strategy conversation of do you... Is your employment and your workforce strategy to develop into talent and build a world-class organization? Or is your strategy to r- run through human resources repeatedly? And, yeah. Can, can well, that remember, ever be good customer service yeah. to run through your customer service people? Can you ever provide good customer service that way? I yeah, think you well, can firewall it. I would believe you could. <laughs> I would believe that you could firewall it, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's recall here the iron law of institutions, which is that they act primarily to further their own existence, giving a path from the customer service level to the higher level that may be optimal for customer service, but will management feel threatened by the knowledge that people can climb up from that level to theirs? Well, and this brings up a point. One of the big fallacies in sales is your best salesperson gets to be promoted 
to be sales manager. And they do not bring management skills in there. And the Army addressed this by creating a completely different rank, and that's the specialist ranks, as they were realizing that they had technology needs. They had people who were not in the infantry and going to go through private corporal, sergeant, etc. They came up with a separate rank. And my suggestion is that that's what companies need to look at particularly ones that are more customer-driven to be able to not necessarily pull somebody off the customer service track and put them into somewhere else because they may be happy being customer service, but to be able to increase their pay and their responsibilities within customer service. I always think of this, I, I like what I aspire to really when I think about working in technical service and bringing them up, I think of it as a snake eating its own tail, where I would really like to see the tail end, the tech support people end up in UX, UI and UX, or have a direct feedback loop there to where the customer service is in some ways having, or the customer experience people are having a direct relationship with the people who are facing the customers. Yeah. Are, are you suggesting then that somebody coming up through technical service becomes a UX UI designer? That maybe they do, or maybe they just have, maybe they're part of that design process. Not that they have to be a designer, but maybe they're instrumental in writing the requirements. And if they do have a technical path, that is maybe where the technical path belongs if they're not going to go into engineering. Yeah. And you could say both sides of it. But that discussion, again, like in technical service up to technical support, for software, up to 50% of your problems are, in fact, usability problems. Right. And there's two problems with that. Like One is that the, <laughs> that the customers are just keep calling in and reporting you know, the buttons in the wrong place. And the customer service agent all day long is just repeating the same script. The button is over here. The button is over here. And there's two evils to that. One is that the problem isn't fixed for the customer. The other one is that you're using the technical support agent as a robot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the co cost of quality, basically, non-conformance costs. Uh, so uh, this is the Abstract Capable Communities podcast, and uh, today we're talking about managing customer service. We just had a conversation about um, literally managing customer service operations. So we're talking about the workforce, talking about the dealing with the volume of, of stuff that comes in and then handling escalations and the like. Uh, we'll come right back, and we're going to talk about measuring customer service. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at abstract.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to abstract.com slash meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com, S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com. Media